It is good to be together. Welcome to church. As we were leading up to this Sunday, I was chatting a little bit with Darren about how beautiful it is that, that right here at the beginning of spring is when we begin to gather together. It, it, it's, it's just a happy coincidence, maybe. But in my spirit, it feels like the, the, the season, the calendar is declaring God's glory as we step into this time together. Spring is here. Winter is gone. Life is here. Death is defeated. Easter is coming. And the church is together. It is good. It is very good to be able to gather in this way. And Easter is coming. It's coming pretty quick, actually. It's in just two weeks' time. We are going to be celebrating together the most important day in the Christian calendar. It's interesting. Uh, someone did the math, and they figured that well over a quarter of the Gospels, a quarter of the first four books of the Bible, deals with those last days leading up to Jesus' death and his resurrection. The Passion Week, from Palm Sunday through to Resurrection Sunday, take up 25% of the first four books of the Bible. It was the most important thing to early Christians to make sure we got the details of this time right, that we preserved and understood what happened and how it happened and why it happened and how it has changed things and what the reactions were to Jesus' death and resurrection. And, and the cross for early Christians, for apostles, the cross and the resurrection were completely connected. Without the cross, the resurrection loses its meaning. And without the resurrection, the cross loses its power. These two things are tied together into one cosmic event that shaped history. Everything that came after that moment, and in fact, everything that came before that moment, is changed in the cross. It is tied in to that Place. Paul over and over again lays his teaching, his wisdom, his life back at the cross at Easter weekend. He resolves to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. And of course, when he says that, he's speaking about the whole package, about Christ and his life and his death and his life again, his resurrection. The cross to our souls, to our relationship with God, to our understanding of how the universe works on a spiritual level is, is the same as how the scientists think about the Big Bang on a scientific level. Everything explodes outward from this moment. There's a book, it's, it's a really a beautiful book-long poem called The Divine Romance by Gene Edwards that tells the story of Scripture from beginning to end from the perspective of, of curious angels that are watching and are trying to piece together what is God doing. And there's this incredible moment that is captured in the book. It is the peak of the storytelling. It is, it is the, the sort of the ultimate moment in this book. And what happens is they center in on Jesus dying on the cross and time freezes and the earth stands still and the angels 
pick up their assignments. And it tells the story of angels rushing throughout all history, back in time, back to the Garden of Eden, and even further to a lamb on the cross before time itself. And they rush forward through every government and dominion and principality. Everything in human history and future is swept up and brought to converge in this moment. They go to find death and sickness. They find tradition and law and religion. And they gather all of these things together and they step away outside of time and look at the entire universe throughout all time as they see it. And all that is left in everything is the cross. And Jesus hanging on it, God upon it, there in the nothingness. Everything has converged on this one moment. Everything has been changed and transformed by what Jesus did. And traditionally, at this point in the calendar year, we would sort of gently be moving towards Easter. We would be walking with Jesus towards Jerusalem. We would be looking at the weight of the decisions being made. We would be pondering the sacrifice, we would be looking at those days leading up to the cross, up to the resurrection, but this year I couldn't wait. I didn't have it in me. It's time to celebrate, isn't it? Amen? It's time to recognize the gifts that we've been given. Similar to Advent, actually, this year. A year and a half ago with Advent, we spent time looking at the darkness of the season, at the, at the tension and the brokenness of that time. This year, we said, we're looking at light. This is a year for light. And same with Advent, we want to open our gifts a little early this year. We want to take the next three or four weeks and look at the hope that we have received in Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. As we move forward, we want to understand in a deeper way what God has given us through this, the way that it changes things, the way that it changes us to recognize its sufficiency for us, that it is enough for us no matter where we are at, to recognize what it accomplishes for us. And so, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And because he is risen, because the tomb is empty, we have hope for many things. And we'll be looking at those things over the next few weeks, but for today, we're going to keep it as simple as we can. There's hope for you. There's hope for you and there is hope for me here and now. Not some foggy, misty, far-off future hope, but hope in this moment, in this place, in this time of your life. The resurrection isn't just for heaven. It's for now and today. Sometimes when we think about hope, we think of the salvation we have received and we think about that primarily as a future thing, right? A check that we're going to cash Later on, it's, it's like uh, contributing to RRSPs. They sort of sit there. They're going to be claimed at a later date. It's going to come in handy once you're retired. But, uh, you know, for me, for 30 years, it's just going to kind of be a number on a piece of paper until I start to draw the dividends of this thing. But that is not how the cross works. It's certainly true that our eternity is secure through Christ's death and resurrection. Death has been defeated, and we do have hope beyond the grave but it's also true that it changes this moment. It changes here and now. And we're going to get into a piece of Scripture, a passage from Ephesians, that will help open this up for us a little bit more. But I was trying to think 
of an analogy for this, so something that I could use to sort of explore this. And at first, I had actually written down the story of a restaurant experience I had had, but I feel like every time I talk to you about restaurants, things go a little bit wacky. Years ago, I told a story about eating broccoli at a specific restaurant, and for years, I was the broccoli guy. And a couple of weeks ago, I gently shared some opinions about Olive Garden, and I feel like that has caused some problems in our church, and I'm not sure if me and Mike are on speaking terms right now, and so I am staying away from restaurants. I'm not going there. I have to think of something different. So today, I'm going to talk to you about Disney World. I never went to Disney World as a child, but for Christmas in uh, 2009, so for those of you doing the math, I would have been in my early 20s, I would have been pretty freshly married to Aaron, my family, my entire mom's side of the family actually went down to Florida together. And Aaron and I didn't join for the whole time, but we were out there for a few days with the family, and on one of those days we went, of course, to Disney World, and we toured around. How many of you have been to uh, Disney World before in Florida? I see a few hands out there. It was magical. It was a magical experience. I wasn't really looking forward to the day, but it turned out so good. It was crowded, and it was overpriced, and the lines were long, and it was like clearly manipulative, but it was so cool. It was just the coolest thing ever to see these characters walking around, and and everything is engineered to pull at your heartstrings and to tie back to your nostalgia from childhood. The rides, the foods, the music, everything there is sort of designed to create this experience. But the highlight of the day for me was probably uh, going on the Space Mountain roller coaster. That's probably what I enjoyed most. I see Carl nodding here that he agrees with me. And I'll talk about that a little bit more. But what I want to do first is read uh, the passage that we're going to be focusing in on today from Ephesians. And you can do the math to see if you can figure out how these things connect. Good luck. We're going to do Ephesians chapter 2. I'll read verse 1 and then verses 4 to 7. This is what it says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Then verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated, him, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So how could that connect to Space Mountain? What I'm going to start with here is uh, the grammar in this verse. I know that gets some of you very excited that we're going to be covering the grammar here. Uh, but, but stay with me. Uh, it's an incredible thing, I think, when we dig into this, that Paul is promising us here, that Paul is speaking. Who knows that when we die, we are going to be with Jesus? I love the hands that I see. That is something that we understand, right? That sometime in the future, when we pass away, we will be raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms, right? That's salvation 101. But that's not what Paul is saying here. I'll break it down a little bit. He says that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. That's past tense. We were dead in, our, in the past, but God has done something, right? Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, 
made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that we have been saved. That's past tense. That's something that God has done for us. When we were dead, he saved us by grace. And then here's where it gets interesting. And God, still in that past tense understanding, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he may show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Isn't that wild? Isn't that almost impossible to comprehend? Here is your hope. We're not waiting to go to heaven. It's already happened. Somehow it is currently happening. In some spiritual sense, in some heart and soul way, we are already there. Jesus has already brought us there with his death and resurrection. We are already in the heavenly realms with Jesus. Christianity, Paul is saying, Christianity isn't just about what happens after death. It's not just about living differently in hopes of a future reward. We have already been raised up. We are already seated, present tense, with Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes that because we are with Christ in the heavenly realms, we are already enjoying something of the life of heaven even now. The Apostle Paul talks about partaking of the first fruits. He talks about having a foretaste. The great harvest has not yet come, but the first fruits are available. The glimpses of glory. We should have the occasional glimpse. We should occasionally have heard something of the music. We should have some sensation of the life that will be lived there. So this is where Space Mountain comes in. For any of you who have been on this ride, or similar rides, the lines are long. And Disney, in order to try and ensure a properly magical experience, has taken this into account, and they make the ride so much bigger than just the roller coaster itself. In fact, a half an hour or 45 minutes before you reach the actual ride, you are already in the building. There are already interactive exhibits and dramatic lighting and voiceovers and mood music, and you're already experiencing Space Mountain in some way. Who can say when you'll actually get to the front of the line and ride the roller coaster? No one knows the day or the hour. But my mind has already shifted. I am already in the building, and there are signs all around me, foretastes of what is to come. My experience in the present is directly tied in to my future. Not technically on the ride, but I'm already fully invested in the adventure and the experience. I'm already experiencing the gifts of the ride. So, what does that mean for our lives now? Here's a quote that I hope will connect with you. Henry David Thoreau wrote that it's not what you look at that matters, it's what you see. It's not what you look at that matters, it's what you see. Back to Ephesians 2. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. How does that change what we see? How does that change how we think? How does that change how we interpret the world around us? 
Paul spends a lot of time talking about this and building this up in Ephesians. So I'm going to jump to a few different passages to sort of help build this argument a little bit. First, let's go back just a few verses to the end of chapter 1, just ahead of those verses from chapter 2. He's priming the pump for this statement. And he says this. This starts in verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18. I pray, says Paul, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as his mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So let's think about this together a little bit. At first glance, it is a little bit of a weird thing for Paul to say. This is the early church he is speaking to. These people have sacrificed much to be in this building. They've taken on much risk to be in this building. The church in Ephesus, they already clearly understood the hope that God was calling them to. They understood the inheritance that they had been offered. They knew this. It's why they're there. So then why is Paul asking them to be enlightened about these things that they already know? We can maybe look at that phrase, the eyes of the heart, as a clue. Paul is telling them, this truth that you understand intellectually, you have to understand this in a deeper way. You need to access this in a truer way. This needs to connect with you at a heart level to a Christ that rules with power, not just in the age to come, but also here in this present age. He continues to build this theme through chapter 3. In Ephesians 3, Paul prays that God would strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of fullness of God. Again, the Christians in the church understood that Christ was in them. They were already spirit-filled believers. They had already come to a fullness in Christ. Paul talks in Colossians about Christ having brought all to fullness. So what is Paul getting at here? What is there left for Christ to fill? Paul is simply saying this, I think. He's calling the church, he's calling us to focus so deeply and intently and completely on Christ and Him crucified, on the resurrection power of God who has already brought us into heaven to sit beside Him, that this gets past our, our minds and our understandings and weaves its way into our hearts. And what happens is that that awareness of God becomes so real and near to us that it begins to change how we interpret how we see what's going on around us. What we are looking at might remain exactly the same, but how we are seeing things completely changes. It's that St. Patrick's Day prayer that I posted on Facebook. Christ be with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. And then the prayer continues. Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me, as we learn to see Christ in us, Christ before us, behind us, 
as we learn to rest in him and hope in him, not just for the future, but in the present, then what happens is that Christ sits in the hearts of those who think of us, in the mouths of those who speak of us, in the eyes that see us, in the ears that hear us, because we begin to love and to act and to look and to sound like Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection gives us hope because we have been raised up with him, not just in the future, but somehow now already we have a taste of heaven. We have a piece of the victory, of a connection to Christ that will be fully realized in the future. Not because of what we do or how hard we try or what we can muster in our own thinking, not because of a positive outlook or because of blind optimism, but because Jesus has done it. He has won victory over death and evil and darkness. The light has won. And if we can simply understand to see what is truly there, what has truly happened, then, not through our own strength, but through Christ in us, our thoughts will begin to change. And more than that, our actions will change. The cross changes the way we live. The Christian call, of course, was never about the end destination, or at least not simply about that. Instead, as Paul says in Romans 8.29, it's about the process of being conformed into the image of his Son, about looking more and more like Jesus in the here and now. And Paul explains how this happens. In Ephesians 4, he calls us to put off our old selves, which are being corrupted by deceitful desires, and be made new in the attitudes of our minds and put on our new selves created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. What's amazing here is that Jesus' death and resurrection, as we dwell on this, becomes a model for us. Salvation comes through Jesus' death and resurrection, but salvation also works itself out in our lives through a cycle of putting off our old selves and putting on our new selves, of death and life, of discarding the old and strengthening the new. Jesus is the ultimate template for how we build our lives spiritually, for how we grow. What, what I'm trying to get at here is that when we look to Jesus, when we seek to know nothing but him and him crucified, when we put our hope in him, when we understand what his death and resurrection have accomplished for us, then we become cross-formed people. We begin to see that same rhythm of death and life in our own lives. We begin to see that things that we thought we needed, idols that we were holding on to, we begin to see these things die in our lives. We begin to see these things being put to death. Our need for approval from the people around us, our need for status or for money or for power or our tendency to think the worst about situations of the people around us or our laziness or our selfishness, these things begin to die in us. And as we sit next to Jesus, as we see these things in our old selves, it can be a painful thing. It hurts to put to death the old. But as we do that, the new grows abundantly. For every little death, there is greater resurrection. Elizabeth Elliot writes that we are not meant to die merely in order to be dead. God would not want that. We die in order to live. A seed falls in the earth and dies, and out of its death comes multiplied life. I was trying to decide how to end this. And I ended up deciding 
that I would read something that has really inspired me. It's been rattling around in my head for the last few days. I follow Beth Moore on Twitter. Now, I realize that I am not Beth Moore's target audience. But she has become one of my very favorite Twitter follows. I don't actually even remember how I ended up following her. For all I know, it might have been a misclick. But she is there in my Twitter feed just about every morning with a thought from what she's reading in Scripture that day or, or amusing from her life. And I find her just to be encouraging and real and thoughtful and edifying. And, and, and she was off Twitter for a while, for a week or two, which in Twitter time is three or four years. And when she came back, uh, in the first day or two, she posted a string of tweets which to me just beautifully captures some of what I've been trying to get at uh, through this message of hope and some of what we're going to be exploring over the next weeks. And so I wanted to finish by just reading this string of tweets that she uh, posted, and hopefully it's as encouraging to you as it was to me. This is what she said. A week ago, I left our home in the woods to go see my eldest daughter and her family. I left an herb garden brown and wilted, I left brand new baby fruit trees drooping and leafless, drove past more fallen limbs than I could count, wintered come killing. Of nature's four daughters, winter is the meanest, but I am certain, at least in my own mind, that spring is the most defiant. Maybe we don't notice because she's a bit passive aggressive. I don't know if I told you, but lavender turns an eerie gray like a human corpse when it dies. I was away four days. Home, I headed outside as I always do. Green, scalloped, edged sprouts were growing up irreverently through that gray corpse like they did not know a funeral home when they saw one. Every herb was back. You were dead, I said. Well, we're back, they clacked. Oh, I know there's nothing new about this story. People have been musing about daughter spring since a human hand first held a writing tool. But really, isn't that the miracle of it? That she never grows old? That something about her is oddly ageless, eternal? She mischievously whispers through branch and breeze that somewhere beyond our sight, Eden thrives. Did I mention that my grapevines are sprouting? Did I mention that so much has died in me this last week, this last year? Did I mention that I am too tired to come back to life? Nothing in creation is as defiant as resurrection. Spring draws her courage from an empty tomb. She drew it for centuries by faith, hearing rumors from heaven that it was inevitable. Spring, you see, was our first Magdalene our first evangelist, preaching risenness in advance. Resurrection is coming for me. I can feel it. It doesn't matter that I'm too tired. doesn't matter that I've died. It is determined to play a song I can't resist waking to, shaking to, dancing to. This world has killed us. But Jesus, who defied death and hell, is wooing us to life. Isn't that amazing? Life is coming for us. 
whether we're ready or not. New growth breaks through like it doesn't know a funeral home when it sees one. Jesus has won. Death is defeated. And it doesn't just change your destiny after your life on earth is done. It changes you now. My prayer is that as we go through this series, as we celebrate and approach Easter, as we worship together, we can have eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of that statement. Amen? Amen. I'm going to close with a benediction here from Ephesians chapter 3. This is my prayer for us as we leave. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power in his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.